welcome to the 10th episode of the podcast we call Two Chairs Talking. And as it was last episode, uh, my normal co-host Perry Middlemiss is still away. He's overseas at the Dublin World Science Fiction Commission over in Ireland. Um, but today I'm very pleased to welcome Kerry Hanfield with me uh, to help co-host the show. Uh, hello, Kerry. Hello, David. Kerry and I go back a long way. Kerry and I went to, were at the same school together, Eltham High, in, oh goodness me, no, it was the end of the 1960s, yes. I think. It's mm. a long while ago. And um, so we, we go back a long way. And it was Kerry who got me into Australian science fiction fandom. It's all his fault. <laughs> we often <laughs> say it's Kerry's mm. fault. And, uh, but I actually, I, I thank him very much for that, indeed. So that really happened. You were already gotten involved in science fiction fandom. You went to Monash, I think. So. Um, I, I did. Let's go back a step. Although I got David involved in fandom, in a sense, uh, David was the reason I got into fandom in the first place. As David said, we both went to the same high school together. We became good friends because we both had a love of science fiction. Uh, in 1969, we'd finished high school and went to university. I went to Monash. David went to Melbourne University. Because we lived in the same sort of suburbs or close to each other, we kept in touch after high school. Uh, and apart from having a love of reading science fiction, Dave was also a great writer of science fiction short stories. And I remember going back that time, Dave would often complain to me how hard it was to get his stories published. So one day I appointed myself as David's agent. Ah, yes. I knew nothing about being an agent or selling stories. didn't matter. I was going to sell David's stories and make him famous. <laughs> at the time, uh, the best place to buy science fiction in Melbourne was at McGill's Music, where Mervyn Binns was an employee, and I'd go there on a regular basis. One day, I was there and saw a mag magazine called Australian Science Fiction Review, edited by Mr. John Bangsend. I got a copy of that. I merely wrote to John Bangsend and... Asked him if he did uh, publish, he said, short stories. I said, I had a new exciting writer uh, and would he consider publishing. He wrote back kindly and said, we're a critical magazine. We do not publish science fiction, but I'd be happy to meet with you and talk about it. So one Saturday afternoon uh, in February 1970, David and I went to John Banks' place in Clifton Hill and spent two or three hours and it was discovering a new world. He was, John Bangsman was someone who'd read the same science fiction authors as us, in fact, more than we'd met, read. Uh, and unlike most of our relatives and family, didn't look down on science fiction as not literature or not, not worth doing. More than that, he said, there's a world out there of people like him who read and discussed and talked about science fiction, both in, in Melbourne, in Australia, and around the world. He also introduced us to... Uh, fanzines and fandom uh, he's, and he was in touch with you know some of our favorite writers through through mail through letters of comic through publishing his fanzine so it for both david and me it was a real eye-opener at the end of the day we left um carrying several copies of like, his fanzine and other fanzines and very quickly it developed into a lifelong, I'd say, almost say, obsession. Um, in quick succession, uh, he invited us, and we went to our first science fiction convention, which was held in Murrumbina Mar that year uh, at Easter. And there we met a lot of people that like 
later became firm friends, people like Lee Edmonds, mm-hmm. John Foister, Mervyn Binns, Robin Johnson. Paul Stevens. And, and Paul Stevens. So, uh, and there were panels and there were discussions. And a lot of the activity, like most conventions, was social you know, and talk about what you've been reading mm-hmm. and a whole, whole range, range of things. Mm-hmm. At the time, there's also, I think that was the first discussion or first launch of the Australia in 75 bid mm. to hold a Worldcon in in Melbourne, and there were lots of ideas floating around about that. Uh, one thing I remember just thinking about the other day, the Murray Convention and all the recent Australian conventions up to then had been held in church halls or community centres, had not been held in hotels. Uh, one of the things we really realised fairly quickly with the Worldcon bid was that the Worldcon and a lot of the conventions in America and England were held in hotels, mm. and if we were serious, we need to uh, start doing that. So over the next two or three years, I seventy one was the first time an Australian convention was held in, in a hotel. I remember several conventions being held uh, in the Victoria Hotel. The Victoria, yeah, uh, Victoria is good, good hotel. Good conventions. Yes, yeah. yes. So our activity went went from there. Around this time, uh, John Banks's told us about ANSAPA, which mm. is an amateur press association. Both David and I joined, and for the first few mailings, we published a joint fanzine, uh, which I recall was uh, fairly pouring in quality. Not very good on non rounds. Yes. <laughs> but legibility being one of them. Yes, and, and content. But basically, uh, I stayed a member for a couple of years, writing was not my forte, David really loved the, the fanzine concept and he developed his own fanzine for Zappa and a range of other fanzines yeah, that's right. in gen- general circulation. Yeah. The other thing, at the time there were other things going on, uh, there was a group called the Nova Mob, mm-hmm. which John Banks had started about a year before and it was a fairly loose meeting where people would get together once a month in people's homes talk about uh, science fiction. Dave and I got involved in that. Uh, and I remember during the early semi periods, we ended up hosting a couple of those. Um, I was sharing a house with Don Ashby in Brunswick, and we had people around, around there. Looking at my own personal activities, uh, as people who know me well, I'm a real organiser. Yes. So I very quickly got into the role of working on the convention committees. Mm. Uh, and like I went from 1970, my first convention to being part of the AussieCon Central Committee only three years later. Mm. Um, but I've really enjoyed doing that. I've worked on net conventions and local conventions. And at the same time, I was still studying at Monash. Mm. Uh, when I joined Monash, there was a small science fiction club Stuff by John Forster. Yes. Uh, so Forster was still studying there at the time. He, he was still studying, but uh, my first year, I think, was his last year. Mm. So in 1970, he'd look, he'd gone, and the club had fallen in a bit of doldrum. But basically, I took over the running of the club. Mm. It was appointed president, and I ran it for the next three years. It was a small club. Um, I think we had a library of about three or 400 books, which we'd lend out to members, and... We started producing a fanzine mm. called Course Apprentice, mm-hmm. uh, and I was the—I wouldn't say that I was the publisher for the first three or four years. Uh, we had several people doing the writing. I was more involved in the 
producing mm. the actual copies. Mm. Mm. That's, that's from my point of view, it's interesting what you say about the first meeting with John Banks, mm. because I suppose as my interest has always been in writing and publishing, mm. that um, the, the main memory I have of that is is the Anzapa connection. Sure. The fact that mm. you talked to us about fanzines and about mm. Anzapa in particular. Mm. So that's, that's what comes out of that mm. um, to me. Uh, and also that... that Bangson was such an, is, is such an interesting character in that he was a, a strong science fiction fan, but he had a great literary background himself, and, and he, he, he knew such a lot. He, he studied a lot. He used an amazing, amazing amount of... Yeah, that's right. So, yes. so it, was, it was the first uh, inkling I had, I suppose, that you could be both interested in science fiction and, and also be interested in wider, wider field yes. of literature yes. and bring, mm. bring the two things together. Mm. So, mm. so that was what was interesting. One mm. of the interesting things about mm. that Bangson... So that, that was interesting. So you, you established, uh, you, well, you kept the uh, Monash University Science going. Fiction uh, Club going. Was it a club or association? Association. Monash University Science Fiction Association. Mm. And when I got to university, I think it was my first year. might have been on my second year. Mm. No, I think it might have been. Mm. No, it was probably my second year, 1970. Mm. And so in imitation, I, I decided that, that there should be a Mel- University of Melbourne Which is Science dying. Fiction Association. Mm. So I just put out a a call in the, mm. the little um, uh, student union newsletter yeah. or whatever and to, to gather at a certain place at a certain time uh, if you're interested. And a whole bunch of people turned mm. up, uh, including people I've known since then for, for years, including Stephen Solomon. That was right. the first time I ever met Stephen because mm. um, so he turned up to that. And um, so there, there are a few other people whose names I now forget, but but that sort of Got there. And, I, and I, I published a magazine for them called Igruzel. That's right, I remember um, But I can't, I don't think it was really great, uh, very important. <laughs> mm. um, so, yeah, that was, that was how, how, how we both sort of got, got involved in, in science fiction fandom. And as you say, you're, you've always been more of the okay. organiser. Yes. And I've always been more interested in the, uh, the, the writing and the mm-hmm. publishing side. Yes. And so I, I've tended to be involved as the person who was involved in the publicity materials, the... Uh, the uh, the posters the um, the program books and, and so on so how I ended up actually running the science fiction convention in 1985 <laughs> I really I really don't know that's a whole other story <laughs> so um, the other thing I thought we might talk about today because what we talked about in the last episode was having a series of episodes of this podcast dealing with Ozicon the first world science fiction convention held here in Australia and uh, my particular interest in Ozicon more than anything uh, was uh, the fact that there was a writer's workshop involved. So we might backtrack a little and, and, and discuss the fact that Ursula Le Guin was chosen as the guest of honour uh, for that convention, which, as uh, Robin pointed out in his uh, in the last episode, uh, wasn't uh, necessarily a universal choice to begin with, but it was uh, gradually agreed to. You think the, the choice was proposed by, uh, her choice was proposed by John Banks. I'm pretty sure place. it was. Yeah, because he, he'd been in contact with her probably through uh, Australian right. Science Fiction Review. Definitely. That's yes. right. And so uh, he knew of her work. Mm. But it's interesting, looking back, I, I was just looking just before at um, what books that she had actually published by then. So that's quite interesting, I think, in that uh, her first three uh, Earthsea books were out okay. by then, the, those fantasy oh. books. Mm. And um, she'd been publishing a number of science fiction novels uh, in in what, what later was called her Hainish cycle, beginning with Rakanan's World. So that was out, Rakanan's World was out in 66, Planet of Exile, also 66, City of Illusions, which I don't think I've ever read, 
67. Is it? Yeah, yes. I, must, mm. I must go back and mm. read some of these things. Mm. And then, of course, Left-Handed Darkness, which I think most people would agree is a masterpiece. Mm. Although The Dispossessed, which should come out mm. just the, the premature in 74. Yeah, and that was a good timing because they won the Hugo in 1975. We tried to talk the other day about how many times the Guest of Honour has actually been awarded the, the, best, the best novel and mm. the commission. There, there must be very few, I think. I, so, yeah. Not very many. No, 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 indeed. So, yeah. so it was, it was a, really a, a very good choice. Mm. But as Robin pointed out in the last episode, uh, there was some doubt about whether she would actually come after we, we'd invited her because she had family commitments. That, mm. There was a whole, whole range of things that might cause her not to come. And so he sort of jumped through several hoops to get extra funding. And so on. And part of the, uh, the enticement to get Ursula to, uh, to come was the idea that we could have a, a writer's workshop to encourage local science fiction writers, uh, of whom I was trying to be one. I'm very flattered by Kerry's nice comments about my <laughs> early, early stories, but I'm not sure they were that quite that good. <laughs> but anyway, I was, was working towards it. And um, so, Kerry, you, you got involved, I think, in the, again, from an organisational point of view, in, in organising... Um, as Robin said in his podcast... Um, he appointed Bruce Gillespie as the administrator for the writer's workshop. Uh, basically, I was involved in helping him do a lot of the lead work uh, coming up to the workshop. Two main things. One was the choice of venue. Uh, Bruce and I spent several weekends driving around the Dan- Dandenongs. We had a short list of potential venues. We went to see several. Uh, some were too big, some were too small, some were too expensive. Uh, became fairly obvious when we saw that uh, Booth Lodge was the ideal place. It had the right number of bedrooms. It had several meeting rooms. The costing fitted our budget. So that was a major hurdle that we had to overcome. The other thing I was involved with, and one of the key things with the writer's workshop process is that uh, participants produce stories each day and need to be read by all participants, so we had to organise a heavy-duty photocopier, mm. uh, which we did. Uh, our budget at that time only stretched to one of those old-fashioned wet photocopiers. Well, I think that was almost all that I was around. Well, really, really, really around. I think, I think the dry toner stuff didn't really come no, to no, us after no. that. So we rented one, and with the help of Don Ashkin and a couple of other people, we had to get the machine up to Birth Lodge with uh, bottles of chemicals and large rolls of paper. So that was my involvement before the convention. Um, I had another big involvement after the convention, about a year after the, after the workshop. It was decided it would be a really good idea to produce a book based on the workshop. Uh, so at the time, I was running Australia Press with Rob Duran and Bruce Gillespie. So we produced a book edited by Lee Harding called The Altered Eye. Uh, and the idea behind this was, was more than just a short story collection. It contained fiction produced at the workshop, but it also contained a lot of um, stories and articles by the people there about their experience, uh, and that gives it a really unique flavour. And what I'd like to do now is read out one of those stories from this collection to give you a really good idea of the workshop and how it worked. Okay, this article is called Stabbed Alive, and it's by Randall Flynn, and it starts with a quote. The quote says, now he's been stabbed alive, he's seen things from Joyce Carey's The Horse's Mouth. On August the 2nd, 1975, the mundane world disappeared and stayed away for a week. 
In its place, drastically contracted and reduced from the real world was the world of Booth Lodge. There were 19 aspiring and unpublished writers gathered together for the workshop. I don't know who made the beds or watered the flowers or maintained the place. Certainly our meals appeared regularly before us from out of the shifting grey shimmer of thought and were placed before us on the table. Cars materialised at gates upon arrival, deposited their passengers and winked quietly out of existence when they departed. Now that we were securely isolated from the outside world and scarcely in any more that I can recall, we proceeded with the sorcery. We arrived at Booth Lodge late on a Friday night and we were shown into a large, warm room where we sat around on chairs, on sofas and on the floor. Stories were handed out and we were told the order for reading the following morning. With surprise and some anxiety, I found that my story was scheduled first. This initial response was followed by about 12 hours of nervousness. Sorcery, you see, is a hard business. Done with a half-heart, it produces a lot of smoke and air gas. Done seriously and with honest spells, there is a shadowy hope of creating a living prism. This is a story, a magic, a masterpiece. But it isn't always easy. The spells have to be learned and the amalgams required. This requires luck, knack, or a workshop, which shows you magic in action and may make you into an archmage or something, but it's still hard work, hard work. For days or weeks or months, you have worked on a story, a magical composition. You have slept on it and thought on it and frustrated on it, and you have finally written it. As you timidly expected, it didn't go exactly what you wanted, it was not nearly as good as you thought it might have been, but it was born of joy and mirth. And anyhow, you knew that if it came to any judgment, there were always worse stories around, even published in high-paying magazines. So what do you do with it? Why, of course, being an aspiring writer, you popped it in a post and sent it off to the workshop competition. Now you find yourself sitting in this warm room. It is early morning. Outside it is so cold, there is frost on the glass, and as you sit there, you feel your skin tingle, and the muscles on your neck contract until you scarcely move your head. Your breathing is irregular. You are very pale feeling. You might be having a baby, judging by the symptoms. What are you doing here? Go on, get up on your feet and run. Nobody will notice. They're more terrified than you are. They actually have something to to say something. Why is it so hot in here? Why is it so intense? The laughter doesn't sound right. Hide quickly. She's coming. And Ursula comes in. She's a small, thin lady who smokes a pipe and smiles friendly and sits on the floor. Introductions and occupations, age and aspirations go round in circles. You're on first times now with your fellow aspirants. But what about Mrs. Le Guin? Ursula Le Guin? Uh, no, Ursula. Yes, it's Ursula. Okay, she says, who's first bait? Or something like that. Me, timidly. So they begin. Ursula re- reveals the main rule. That is the rule of vegetable silence, which means you have to sit like a vegetable throughout the criticism of others without once speaking or replying. You can groan, and you do. 
sometimes in desperation or indignation. You make vigorous head movements or hand gestures. But since you are helpless, these gestures are instantly overlooked. And the absence of anything physical to do, you content yourself with a perennial frown and sit scratch up on the floor between the armchair and the door. In your lap rests a notepad and a pen, and you have your hands fiddle with the pen. No one has yet said anything. No one has yet realised the exact nature of the criticisms they must give. But this uncertainty is only temporary. Well, I like the story, someone begins. I really thought it was nice, but... The world ends, not with a whimper, but with a but, and continues to end over and over and over until you think it can't possibly end one more time. Your critics have told you in intimate details exactly what is wrong with your story, what is about a particular sentence that gave them pain, why this character shouldn't have said that and should have done that. Slowly and kind of reluctantly, you begin to realise that writing is no longer a hobby to be done perfunctionally. You realise that is past three or four or five years, you'll secretly be treated as a hobby, not as your work. The walls have come down and you can see that to write something worthwhile is going to done flippantly or casually. It's got to be a total commitment to words, to feelings, to ideas, to people and to yourself and to the characters. You learn or you begin to suspect that there is an esoteric logic in writing a form or stratum that you must attain and crack before you can go on to further conquests. This is the commitment. It is very elusive. It avoids being found, but may, I hope, be stumbled upon. Your legs are cramped, so you shift around. Criticisms are still flowing. You listen carefully to every word, hang on every phrase and snippet of advice. You can't be defensive or muddle-minded here. You can't say anything. Just sit, listen, mull over, analyse. In some ways, it is a relief. In some, not all. A few days, a few hours ago, you were very pleased with that story, self-satisfied. Now, in the middle of the attacks, you are piercingly aware that it is only a proportion or an ingredient of yourself that you are evaluating something you squeezed out of your brain, of, of your world, to dare put on the paper openly for them all to see. And then it doesn't seem so bad anymore because you know intuitively that they understand, that they recognise and acknowledge the carriage it took for you to write and to let them see, see it, see inside you. They have a similar carriage, otherwise they would not be here. And anyhow, the story could not be all bad, but of course it is. Good criticism becomes self-evidence once pointed out and explained. Hell, you say, that's obvious. But how could I have been so blind? All those silly errors, those inconsistencies of style and character. Where were they when you were read and reread the story? Of course, they were invisible. And are they now visible? Well, yes and no. They're becoming more visible all the time, and some, which earlier had been prime and serious offenders, have now lost some of their craftiness and are less adept at concealing themselves. Is this a function of a workshop? I don't know. I think it is a major part of it. You may have talent or you may not, but the elusive art of discernment of knowing what is right or fascist and generally correct 
must be counted on as the middle point of the road to authorship. And the other half, well, if you're lucky, you'll be stabbed alive. <laughs> that's good. Thanks for that. I think that's a great... It's a, it's a, it does sum up the, the Well, you were there. So. I, I, I was there. The, the, it sums up that part of the, mm. the workshop very well, the, the business of criticising the original stories that you submitted mm. to, to get into the workshop. Yeah. Mm. The, the other part of the workshop, which Shersha uh, was, was wonderful at, was, was setting those challenges that we, that we had to meet during the course of the, uh, yes, of the uh, workshop. I've got a challenge I want to ask you about. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, as David says, you said challenges. In fact, Ursula had run workshops in, uh, in the States, and a lot of them follow similar lines. And one of the regular exercises uh, which she did was you had two boxes, and basically in each box there was a word, and one box was full of nouns, and the second box was full of uh, verbs. Mm. And each person had to take... Uh, one word from each box and produce a story and some of the combinations were pretty interesting like healing orgy, broken pit and crippled spinner. Mm. Do you want to talk more about that? Crippled spinner was, was mine and um, so and the, the, thing, the thing about these challenges was you had really to, to do them overnight and to come back um, the next day uh, with, and present it to, to the, the whole group of people and um, so that, that involved some people staying up to incredible hours of the morning, not getting any sleep at all, trying to complete stories. Um, the Cripple Spinner one was, was quite fun. I, I spent ages trying to figure out how I was going to make a story out of that. And um, I, I, I sort of thought the whole business of come in spinner, you know, top, the flipping a coin, the sort of game, Australian game, and some old old codger who was... Who was uh, who was uh, someone who uh, did that form of gambling and was going from place to place, limping along? And um, so then I sort of it then sort of occurred to me, well, this is it's a science fiction workshop, so perhaps it should have some sort of science fictional component. And so I came up with the idea of um, uh, a construction in space, which involved robots uh, spinning. Uh, cable between various parts of the, of the construction. I can't now remember what the construction was. Oh, I know what it was. it was. It was some sort of solar sail that was going to catch the, the solar wind. And uh, something goes wrong in the, in the story. Something goes wrong and the, the young woman who's trying to control one of these robots gets uh, gets tangled up and the, the whole uh, construction gets flying off into, into, into space with her attached um, and that's, that's kind of the end of the story. But that was the crippled spinner part, part, part of the story. Um, but the real killer, which made us all stay up to incredible hours, was Ursula said one day, go and write a love story. And, we, and that was, I, I did write about that in, in The Altered Eye, but yes. that, that, mm. was, that was that was. Mm. So I think someone said you got you know, one love story and ten lust stories. Yeah, I think there was part, part, part of that too. too. Mm. And I, my story, I have to admit, was not really science fiction. I mean, set in a science fiction sure. environment, mm. but really it could have been, the actual mm. love story itself could have been set in an almost any sort mm. of environment. Mm. So mm. it doesn't quite qualify as mm. science fiction, which I think by um, uh, Sturgeon's definition has to be a human story involving human characters facing human conflicts but with a science component which the story wouldn't have happened without that science component mm-hmm. and you couldn't actually have said that in my story mm-hmm. and uh, in fact Damien Knight said something along those lines to me when I actually tried to submit my story to one of his <laughs> anthologies and he rejected it mm-hmm. on, on that basis. 
Yeah, so I mean, Ursula was just a, a fantastic teacher and, and a very warm person. Um, but the one thing which I mustn't forget to mention is is the, the business of groms. Yes, which, does, which does come up in, in the in mm. the in the publication mm. online. Mm. And this all happened because when Randall Flynn, who we just heard from, uh, arrived at the convention, he, he commented, "It was done at what he was, he was talking about his journey down. I think he'd driven down from Brisbane or mm. something like that." And uh, he was talking about the town he'd gone through, which was called Grong Grong. And somehow that became a bit of a meme of, of the workshop. And it was a silly sort of meme. Mm. It, became, it became a bit obsessive. And I think, uh, I mean, there was, I think, a reg- someone was put, putting out a regular daily newsletter. It might even have been <laughs> the Grong newsletter. It was the Grong Grong Gazette. <laughs> um, and um, it might even have been me, or maybe it was a shared, a shared thing. Mm. Um, and uh, but it became quite a thing, and Ursula quite picked up on it quite well. And in fact, it, when we were when I was uh, writing to Ursula after the, the workshop, going back and forth about uh, the plans for this workshop book, um, in one of those letters, she actually signs herself Ursula Legrong. <laughs> <laughs> so she, she obviously thought it was a lot of fun. And uh, so yeah, that, that, the, but the workshop for me was was the highlight of, of 1975. Mm-hmm. The, the convention. In retrospect, after that was uh, was a bit of a, an let anticlimax. Down. Yeah, it wasn't a letdown, but it was mm-hmm. an anticlimax after mm-hmm. after the real the real experience of the workshop. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was, and it was it was. I think it was important in Australian science fiction terms. I mean, it didn't yield a lot of writers, but there were a couple of good ones. Randall was one. Yes. I have a feeling Randall went overseas and did stuff like script writing and stuff. He, he did. Yeah, he, he lived in the states for a number of years. On his Back in England, living in England at the moment, but yes, yeah, he yeah. was quite good as a scriptwriter. Yeah, mm. uh, and the, the real star to me, and I always say this without any uh, any reason to hold back, the real star of, of the workshop was Pip Madam, Philippa Madam. Yes, and the story that she submitted was was actually brilliant. I mm. thought it was it was a fantasy. Well, it was no, it was kind of a, it was kind of science fiction and fantasy, mm. which was very clever. Mm. Uh, and it was it, it was all about someone who's uh, really been captured by the fae, the, the fairies, uh, mm. and the, the, the fairies not with pretty little wings and things, but the, the kind of deep, um, dangerous fairies, fairies that uh, that uh, you come across in uh, in later mm. in a later book, mm. uh, Jonathan Strange and Mister Norell, the sort of really sort yeah. of scary sort mm. of fairies. But they, 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 when it comes becomes clear towards the end that the the, the protagonist has been has actually gone back in time in a time machine. But instead of going back in time to the real world, they've gone back in time and ended up in the fairy, fairy world. world. Brilliant concept. Mm. And she wrote a number of, of, of other great stories she did. following that. So mm. she, she was, she was I think, uh, the, the real star. The, a couple of other people did, did some writing, but not, not a lot of, of no. them were actually, mm. actually published. But the, the book that came out was, was terrific, I think, as, mm. a, as a means of capturing the... Uh, Workshop. So you, you published it as an Australia Press. Yes. But then it was picked up. Right? Yes, it was. I think it was Bantam, uh, largely through Ursula's urging and her, her agents. So there was an edition published a year later after our edition in, in the States. And was that different, very different from your edition? Was this um, yes, it was. Oh, well, no, it had our edition and it had an extra piece story from Ursula. That's right, um, the, the eye altering, is that Yeah, the eye altering. Yeah. And came with the concept of uh, doing long distance workshopping of the story. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the story was sent out to the participants and then they commented on it for email and publishing the book. Um, but also, I'd like to read one more piece from The Altered Eye, 
uh, and get your comment on it. Uh, and this is from Ursula's introduction to the American edition. It says, We were a young five on a desert trek seeking other fives to form a city with. When those poor people came staring across the desert at us shouting and waving their arms, we saw at once they were all sick, out of their minds, because they weren't arranged in fives. They kept trying to join the fives, and we prevented them. After all, they were stealing air, a horrid crime. Meanwhile, the humans were madly trying to explain to us that all they wanted was water, water, water. It was terribly funny. It was a splendid object lesson, and it was very nearly a disaster. It took me an hour to realise what I had done. We stopped the experiment properly then with explanations. Do you want to tell us a bit about this? Yeah, that's interesting, because I was one of the, the five. <laughs> um, there was, there was, a, there was a, a game that she proposed. I know she tried on, on other workshops, but she proposed the, the idea that, that um, we'd role-play the, the idea of aliens, and so five of us became this, this group of aliens, mm. Uh, and uh, the other people in, in the, the workshop were trying to communicate with us. And the other, it, was, it was meant to be a, a means of demonstrating that alien minds could be quite different and you had to think differently. Sure. But in fact, it became uh, a, an object lesson of how to divide a, a previously coherent group into two antagonistic groups. Mm. And the, the people who did, weren't in on the secret, because we as the five were in on the secret of what it all meant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but the people who were outside that got very frustrated and actually started to become very angry. Right. And um, yeah, it was, it was an object lesson of what not to do. Mm-hmm. But it shows you how, how easy it is to, to, to stimulate division or to, to, to cause division in a group. In, in a previously coherent group. Mm-hmm. Just, and it's been tried before in sort of all sorts of different uh, environments where. You know, the, the teacher in the classroom separates the, the people with blue eyes from the people with brown eyes yes. and trying to teach about racism. Hmm. Um, but, in fact, what you do get is, is, is actual hostility. And it must be just deeply in, in building the human character sure. that someone who is different in, in any way hmm. choose. But if they're even marked as just somehow randomly marked as different by having the colour of their hair, yeah. forget about the colour of skin, oh, sorry, colour of their eyes, mm. forget about colour of skin, yeah. which is even more obvious. Um, some, those tiny differences can, can involve people splitting up. And in fact, it reminds me of um, Gulliver's Travels. You remember the bit in Gulliver's Travels, I think it's in Lilliput, where there are two factions, the big Indians and the little Indians. You remember yes, that? Yes, I do. Yeah. And the, 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 this, the, these were very antagonistic groups in society who were really dead set against each other. And what it came down to was whether you cracked your breakfast egg at the little end or the well, big end. <laughs> I mean, it's satire. Sure. But, but, but it was, it's actually quite insightful. Yes. It's very easy yeah. to have these kind of splits. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the business of the fives in that workshop was, was a good demonstration mm-hmm. of the same, mm-hmm. same sort of deal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was interesting, and, and it was it was it did take quite a while to get back onto an even keel. Sure. So yeah, it was a pity, but mm. uh, yeah, it was good. No, I mean the workshop was was a terrific, a terrific event, and uh, it was to me it was well worth the whole commission for, sure. for having that uh, that that uh, event. Mm. We've been talking a good deal this episode about Urshel Le Guin, about the writers' workshop she led for a week up in the Dandenongs, and of course about her selection as guest of honor of Ozicon in 1975. So it seems appropriate for us now to feature the remarkable guest of honour speech she gave at the convention. That this recording of Ursula's speech exists at all is because of the efforts of Don Ashby and his fellow students and colleagues from the State College of Victoria who videotaped the whole convention. 
Quite a few segments, including Ursula's speech, are now available on YouTube. But the quality of those recordings, which were originally probably in a one-inch format, later transferred to VHS and much later to DVD, is now very poor. So what we've done here is to try to clean up the audio by reducing the noise and crosstalk as much as possible to give you the best possible version of Ursula's important speech. 44 years later, much of what she had to say in 1975 still seems applicable to the field. But a call for both readers and writers of science fiction to take it seriously as literature, to put Philip K. Dick on the shelf next to Charles Dickens where he belongs, as she says, sadly seems to me to be still largely unheeded. Now here's Ursula. Well, I just want to start out by, by thanking you all for having me here. Uh, especially, I want to thank the Australia Council, the Literature Board, for putting on that beautiful workshop, and Robin and the rest of the committee for looking after me. And most of all, John Bangson for thinking of this whole silly idea in the first place. <laughs> well, I want to start out with a, a serious question to you all, which is what on earth are we all doing here? I think, I think we've come here to celebrate. This is, this is a celebration. This is what the word means, I suppose. It's coming together of a lot of people from all kinds of weird places, away from their customary life, often at some trouble and expense, maybe not knowing very precisely why they come, but, but uh, moved to come to one place together to celebrate. And a celebration doesn't need any cerebration, it doesn't need any excuses. A celebration is its own reason for being, as you find out once you get there. I think a celebration such as this has its own reasons and its own strange laws and, and lifespan. It's a real thing, it's an event, and, and we hear afterwards in our own separate ways and lives, we're going to look back on it and recall it as a whole. And if there were some bad moments in it, if some of us got drunk and some of us got angry and some of us had to make speeches, and other of us got very bored at the speeches, and still I think the chances are that, that we'll look back on it with some contentment, because the essential element of a celebration is praise, and praise comes out of joy. And when you come right down to it, we've all come here to enjoy ourselves. We're not going to accomplish anything, you know, or establish anything, or sell anything. We didn't come here to make a new law, or to declare a war, or to fix the price per barrel of crude oil. And thank God we didn't. There are enough people doing that sort of rubbish. I think we came here to meet each other, in hopes and some confidence that we'll like each other. We're here to enjoy ourselves, which means we're doing one of the most human of all doings, the search for joy, not the pursuit of pleasure. Any hamster can do that. But the search for joy, and may I wish to you all here that you find it. But what is it that brings this particular us here, these particular peculiar individuals from unearthly places like Canberra and Oregon, all here standing on our heads in Melbourne? <laughs> what are we celebrating here? Joy is a little bit vague. You have, to, you have to put your finger on it. And I put out my finger, and what is it that I touch? Science fiction, of course. That's what brought us here. It does seem a rather bizarre motive 
But it's no odder than the motive that brings together international conventions of manufacturers of plumber's supplies. <laughs> or summit conferences of heads of states discussing how to achieve parity and overkill. Science fiction is the motive and the subject of our celebration. And it's one point where all our different minds and souls touch. Though on every other subject in the world, we may be miles, light years apart. Each of us here has a soul button, I think. It's, it's like a belly button, but it's in the soul. It's labeled SF. Now, many people do not have soul buttons. They only have belly buttons. But we have soul buttons, and if you put your finger out and you touch that button, the whole spiritual console lights up and goes zzz, blink, all systems go, all systems go. Now, I'm your guest of honor, and very much honored to be so. And as such, I felt that I wasn't only to speak to you, but for you, to be the oracle, the, the leader of the celebration, the, the priestess of the cult. I understand that when the last orgy is over, I'm to be led forth and thrown into the nearest volcano. <laughs> to propitiate the fertility gods of Melbourne. <laughs> but I think the nearest volcano is a pretty good ways away. <laughs> so long as I'm here, I think my job is to speak for you, to celebrate what we're celebrating, to speak in praise of science fiction. And that's something I don't mind doing a bit. I like science fiction. And I have reason to be grateful to it. For the past dozen years or so, science fiction has added money to the family pocket and confusion to the family income tax returns, <laughs> books to the family bookshelf, and a whole sort of parallel universe dimension to the family life. Where's Ma going this month? Australia. You mean I have to wash the dishes for a week? <laughs> no, we get to come along. Can I have a pet koala? Can I? I promise to feed it myself. <laughs> Do you people realize, by the way, that to my three children, science fiction is not a low form of literature involving little green men and written by little contemptible hacks. It's an absolutely ordinary, respectable, square profession. It's the kind of thing your own mother does. <laughs> Now, most of us here, those over 25 anyway, we read science fiction when young and we hid our copy of Galaxy inside our copy of Intermediate Algebra <laughs> in order to seem respectably occupied. We asked the children's librarians for SF and they said, oh, we do not allow children to read escapist literature. <laughs> and we asked the adults librarians for it and they said, oh, we do not carry children's books on this side of the building. <laughs> And we put the books down, you know, open to hide the cover which showed the purple squid with the maiden in the bronze bra. <laughs> we had the difficulty, we had the pleasure of doing something which, if not actually illicit, was sneaky and eccentric and addictive and disreputable. Now, you know, our kids, not just my kids, but all our kids, everybody here that's too young to have any business having any kids, the rising generation, is almost entirely missing this experience. The poor things have nothing disreputable left but sex and marijuana. And sex is getting respectable all too soon. People are getting taught science fiction in the schools. 
Some of them may be hiding their copy of Intermediate Algebra inside a copy of, again, Dangerous Visions. <laughs> now, I gather this co-option of science fiction into the curriculum is less usual in the Commonwealth than it is in America. But I was in England in January, and I got stuck on a telly spot. With, there were some Womblies, too. <laughs> but there were five beautiful Cockney kids from a Marylebone school, and they'd read more science fiction than I had. They'd done a whole school session reading and writing science fiction. So it's coming. In the States, it has come, and from St. Pancras Station to the farthest sheep station, it's coming. Science fiction is being taught by teachers and professors in schools and colleges. Science fiction is being seriously discussed by futurologists with computers and by literary critics with PhDs. Science fiction is being written by people who don't know Warp 5 from a Dyson sphere. It's being read by people who don't read science fiction. I am here to proclaim unto the assembled faithful that the walls are down. The walls are down, we're free. And you know what? It's a big, cold world out there. I can't blame those of my generation and older who don't want to see the walls come tumbling down and who cling to their ghetto status as if it were a precious thing, making a religion out of science fiction which the touch of the uninitiated will profane. They were forced into that attitude by the attitude of respectable society intellectual and literary towards their particular interest. And it was perfectly natural for them, like any persecuted group, to make a virtue of their necessity. I don't blame them, but neither can I agree with them. To cling to a posture of evasion and defense once persecution and contempt has ceased is not to be a rebel, but to be a cripple. And what I'd like to see is science fiction to continue to rebel. I'd like to see science fiction evade not those who despise it, but those who want it to be just what it was 30 years ago. I want to see science fiction step over the old walls and head right into the next wall and start to break it down, too. Now, one of those walls is the labeling of books by publishers as science fiction, labeling, packaging, and distributing. At the moment, this is pretty much a necessity of the publishing trade. It's sensible. I don't expect an immediate rejection of the practice. Public librarians and school librarians and booksellers want to shelve and display science fiction so that those who want it can find it. It's convenient for us addicts, and it's profitable to the booksellers and publishers. But the practice does considerable wrong to the innocent non-addict who's prevented from picking up a science fiction book by chance. He has to go to shelf 63 between the gothics and the softcore porn, you know, and look for it. And, of course, the science fiction label perpetuates a dichotomy that no longer exists between science fiction and mainstream. There's a spectrum now. There's not a chasm. The science fiction label is a remnant of the ghetto wall, and I'll be glad to see it go. I'll be glad to see the day when I can go into any library and find the man in the high castle, not shelved next to Barf the Barbarian by Elmer T. Hack, but shelved by author's name, Philip K. Dick, right next to Charles Dickens, where it belongs. And another day like that, the day when the Times Literary Supplement, or the New York Times Book Review, or the East Grong Grong Sheep Ranchers Weekly, <laughs> there is a town called Grong Grong. <laughs> 
That's a workshop in-joke, too, but never mind. When, when the reviewers review a major new science fiction novel, along with the other novels, not in a little box set apart, headed sci-fi or spec-thick or whatever they're calling it now, in which boxes and columns it's implied that however highly praised the work may be, it's not to be placed in the same category, of course, as the other novels reviewed throughout the paper, the real ones. There's a lot of walls yet to, to be reduced to rubble. But what I've been talking about is a bit external. The worst walls are never the ones you find in the way. The worst walls are the ones you put there. You build them yourself. This was said on the panel this afternoon. I was jumping up and down and cheering quietly. The walls you build yourself are the high ones and the thick ones with no doors in. All right, so here we stand. We are science fiction, a noble figure standing among the ruins, chains dropping from our giant limbs facing the future with eagle eyes. But uh, actually, who are we, and what future are we facing with our eagle eyes? Now that we're free, where are we going? Well, from here on, I have to speak as a writer. I've been trying to speak for the community of SF writers and fans, and I've been enjoying it, but I can't keep it up. I'm faking. I am not a fan. You know, many science fiction writers are or were. They, they started as fans. It was, I think, particularly a phenomenon of the ghetto, which is now called the Golden Age. <laughs> I came along just late enough to miss the Golden Ghetto. I didn't even know it existed. I read science fiction as a kid, but I didn't know anything about fandom. I wrote science fiction first. I discovered it was science fiction second when the publishers told me so. And then finally third, I discovered the existence of fandom. That was in Oakland, California in 1964, which I think was the first big world con. I, I was in Berkeley and I heard there was this science fiction thing going on. And I'd published three or four science fiction stories. And I was crazy about Phil Dick and Cordwainer Smith and people. And so I went down to Oakland to see what was going on. And there were about 5,000 people there. And they all knew each other and they knew absolutely everything about science fiction since 1926. And the only one I met was Barbara Silverberg, and she was so incredibly gorgeous that I went home and put my head in a paper bag for a week. <laughs> that was the last Worldcon I attended until this one. You see, I'm an outsider. I, I'm an alien. For all you know, I come from a different galaxy, and I am here planning the overthrow of the entire Australian ballot system. <laughs> Got some supporters on that one, huh? <laughs> but all the same, I do write science fiction, and that's, I guess, why you asked me here. And so I think it would make sense if I went on and spoke as what I am, a writer, a writer of science fiction, a woman writer of science fiction. You know, I am a very rare creature. My species was at first believed to be mythological, like the Tribble and the Unicorn. Members of it survived by protective coloration and mimetic adaptation. They used male pen names. And then slowly and timorously, like platypuses, you know, they began to come out of hiding, looking around warily for the predators. I was forced into hiding once myself by an editor of Playboy who reduced me to a simple, unthreatening, slightly enigmatic shape, a you. Not Ursula, but you. 
I've felt a little bit bent, a little bit U-shaped ever since then. But we kept creeping out. It took a while and there were setbacks, but gradually my species took courage and appeared in full mating plumage. Anne, Sonia, Kate, Joanna, Vonda, Susie, and the rest. But when I say the rest, please don't alarm, don't feel threatened or anything. There aren't very many of us. Maybe one out of 30 science fiction writers is a woman. That statistic was supplied by my agent, Virginia Kidd, who's a very beautiful member of my species. The ratio is a guess, but it's an educated guess. Do you find it a little startling? Because I do. I'm extremely puzzled. I'm even embarrassed by my own rarity. Are they going to have to lock me up in pens, you know, like the platypuses and the whooping cranes and other species threatened with extinction and watch eagerly to see if I lay an egg? <laughs> Why are women so scarce in science fiction, in the literature, among the fans, and most of all among the writers? Some historical reasons come to mind. American science fiction as action pulp fiction during the 30s and Campbellian science fiction written for adolescent engineers. But... <laughs> Those are all circular reasons. Why was Golden Ghetto science fiction males only? Is there something in the nature of the literature that doesn't appeal generally to women? Well, not that I can see. Uh, Campbell's analog in its school certainly did follow one minor element within science fiction to the extreme, to a point where only those who really enjoy wars or wiring diagrams can enjoy it very much. Most women in our culture have been brought up to be fairly indifferent towards military heroics and wiring diagrams, so they're likely to be bored. They're used to being cut out. Juvenile males in most cultures tend to be afraid of women and to form clubs that cut them out and exclude them. Similarly, a good deal of sword and sorcery leaves most women cold because it consists so much of male heroics and male fantasies of sexual prowess, often very sadistic. But you set aside those two minor provinces for the Boy Scouts, and you got all the rest left, all this beautiful countryside of grown-up science fiction, where anything can happen and usually does. Why haven't more women moved in and made themselves at home? I don't know. My trouble is I was born here. I didn't move in. I've always been here, so I can't figure out what the problem is. Year by year, I see more members of my species, mostly young ones, coming and building temporary nests and trying out their wings above the mountains. But not enough. 20 or 30 males to one female is not a good ratio for species preservation. You know, among hens, it goes the other way. You need half a dozen hens for one rooster. But I just want to ask the men here to consider idly in some spare moment whether by any chance they've been building any walls to keep the women out or to keep them in their place and what they may have lost by doing so and to ask the women here to consider idly or not at all idly why are there so few of us we can't blame it on prejudice because in SF publishing there's very little sex bias have women walled themselves out through laziness of mind for fear of being seen using the intellect in public or fear of science and technology, or fear of letting their imagination go, or perhaps fear of competing with men. That, as we all know, is an unladylike thing to do. But art is not ladylike, or gentlemanly. It's not masculine and it's not feminine. The reading of a book, the writing of a book, isn't an act that's dependent in any way upon one's gender. 
In fact, very few human acts other than procreation and gestation and lactation are. When you undertake to make a work of art, a novel or a clay pot or what have you, you're not competing with anybody except yourself and God. Can I do it better this time? Once you've realized that's the only question, once you've faced the empty page or the lump of clay in that solitude, without anybody to blame for failure but yourself, once you've known that fear and that challenge, you aren't going to care very much about being ladylike or about your so-called competition, male or female. The practice of an art is in its absolute discipline, the experience of absolute freedom. And that, above all, is why I'd like to see more of my sisters trying out their wings above the mountains. Because freedom is not always an easy thing for women to find. Well, so, I've got one fact about who and what science fiction is. It's very largely male, but seems to be tending always a little more towards androgyny, at least I hope so. And what else is well, Theodore Sturgeon once remarked that it's 95% trash, <laughs> like everything else. I trust you know Sturgeon's law. But I'm, I'm in a bad mood tonight. I, I want to question Sturgeon's law. Is 95% of everything trash? Is 95% of a forest trash? Is 95% of the ocean trash? Well, it will be if we go on polluting it. But, but uh, is 95% of humanity trash? Any dictator will agree, but I don't agree with it. Is 95% of literature trash? Well, yes. <laughs> I suppose it is. Of the books now published in the world in a year, 95% probably aren't even trash. They're just noise. But I want to go back to speaking as a writer, not a reader, and inquire how many books, while they are being written are conceived of by their author as trash? Because I think that's the real question here. And it's an interesting question. I have no idea what the answer is. It's not zero percent. It's far from it. There are plenty of authors who deliberately write junk for money. And I've met many who, less cynical, still speak of their own works as potboilers or as mere entertainment. A little defensively, because the ego is always involved in the work, but also honestly, in the full knowledge that they hadn't done and hadn't tried to do the best work they could. And I think in art, from the artist's point of view, there are only two alternatives. The best you can do, or trash. It's a binary system. It's yes, no, on, off. Not from the reader's point of view. From the reader's point of view, there are infinite gradations between the best and the worst, all degrees of genius and talent and achievement, between Shakespeare and the hack, and within each work, even Shakespeare's work. But from the writer's point of view, what I'm trying to say, while he's writing, there are just two ways to go. To push towards the limit of your capacity or to sit back and emit garbage. And the really unfair thing about all this is that the intent, however good, guarantees nothing. You can try your heart out. You work like a slave. You try to do your best and you can write dribble. But the opposite intent does carry its own guarantee. No artist ever set out to do less than his best and did something good by accident. It doesn't work that way. You head for perfection and you may very well get trash. But you head for trash and by gum you get it. 
The quest for perfection fails about 95% of the time, but the search for garbage never fails. <laughs> now, I find this repetition of the trashiness of most science fiction too easy. It's both defensive and destructive. It's defensive. It's, don't hit me, folks, I'm down already. That's the old ingratiating ghetto attitude. And it's destructive because it's cynical. It sets limits. It builds walls. It says to the science fiction writer, of all people, why shoot for the moon? Chances are 19 to 1 you won't get there. Only a tiny elite gets there, and we all know that elite people are snobs, right? Keep your feet on the ground. Work for money, not for dreams. Write it the way the editor says he wants it. Don't waste time revising it and polishing. Sell it quick. Grind out the next one. What the hell? It's a living, isn't it? So what if it's not art? At least it's entertainment. Now that's the bit that burns me. That entertainment bit. It hides a big lie behind an obvious truth. Of course, an, a science fiction story is entertainment. All art is entertainment. That's so plain, it's, it's silly to keep saying it. If Handel's Messiah were boring, not entertaining, would thousands of people go listen to it year after year at Christmas and Easter? If the Sistine ceiling were dull, would, would everybody go there and get a crick in their neck looking at it? If Oedipus Rex weren't a good show, would it be in the repertory after 2,500 years? If the first circle weren't a terrifically powerful and entertaining book, would the Soviet government be so scared of it? If Solzhenitsyn were a dull hack, they'd love him. He'd be writing what they want. He'd be writing to the editor's specifications. He'd be perfectly safe. He'd probably be a people's artist by now. Now, of course, some art is immediately attractive and some is very difficult, demanding an intense response and involvement from its readers. The art of your own time tends to be formidable in a time of change like ours, because you have to learn how and where to take hold of it, what response is being asked of us before we can get involved with it. It's really new and therefore it's a bit frightening. I'm very easily frightened. I was even afraid of the Beatles when they first appeared. People are easily frightened, but they're also brave and stubborn. They, they want that entertainment that only art can give them. And they it's, it's a peculiar, solid satisfaction. And, and so they will keep going and listening to weird electronic music. And they'll go stare at <clears throat> big, ugly paintings of blobs, you know. And they'll read these funny, difficult books about people on another world 20,000 years from now. And they go home and they say, well, yeah, I didn't really like it. It's, it's unsettling. It's, it's painful. It's crazy. But... You know, I kind of like that one piece where I went, it got to me, you know. Well, now that's all art wants to do, I think. It wants to get to you, to break down the walls between us as people for a moment, to bring us together in a celebration, a ceremony, an entertainment, a mutual affirmation of understanding or of suffering or of joy. Therefore, I nastily oppose the notion that you can put art over here on a pedestal and entertainment down here in a clown suit. Art and entertainment are the same thing. The more deeply and genuinely entertaining a work is, the better art it is. To say that art is something heavy and dull and solemn and entertainment is modest but jolly and popular, that's neo-Victorianism, it's idiocy. Every artist is deeply serious and passionate about his work, and every artist also puts on a clown suit and capers for pennies. 
The fellows who put on the, the clown suit, but who don't care about performing well, they're neither entertainers nor artists. They're fakes. They know it, and we know it. They may be very popular briefly because they never frighten anybody. They reassure people by lying to them. But when the popularity blows over, the work's forgotten, what's left? You're left with a sort of a hollow place, a sense of waste. A realization that where something real could have been done, a good handsome clay pot or a good entertaining story, the chance was lost. We lost it. We accepted the fake, the plastic throwaway, when we could have held out for the real thing. I'm not an antique lover, but you know how moving it can be to use or handle some object which has been handled by other people in generations before you. I've got a stone axe on my desk at home. Not for self-defense, but just for pleasure. My father used to keep it on his desk. Makes a good paperweight. It's New Stone Age. I don't know how old it is. It could be anything from a few centuries to 12,000 years. It's partly polished and it's partly left rough. It's very finely shaped. It's well made. When you pick it up, you can't help but think of the human hands polishing that granite. There's a sense of solidity and community in the touch and the feel of that axe to me. There's nothing sentimental about it. It's just the opposite. It's a real experience of time, which is our most inward dimension, and which is so difficult to experience consciously, but without which we're completely disoriented in this, what seems so familiar, external dimensions of space. If that makes any sense, that's what I'm trying to say about the real work of art. Like a stone axe, it's there. It stays there. It's solid, and it involves the inward dimension. It may be wonderfully beautiful, and may be quite commonplace and humble, but it was made to be used and to last. Hack work is not made to be used, it's made to be sold. It's not made to last, it's made to wear out and be replaced. And I think that's the difference between art and entertainment on one hand and trash on the other. When Ted Sturgeon made up his law, he was simply responding to contemptuous, ignorant critics of science fiction who really didn't deserve so clever an answer. But his law has been used so much as a defense and an excuse and a cop-out. I suggest that we in science fiction stop quoting it for a bit. I'd like this not to be resigned, but to be rebellious, not cynical, but critical and idealistic. I'd like to hear us say 95% of science fiction is trash. Yuck! Let's get rid of the stuff. Let's open the windows and get rid of the garbage. Here we've got science fiction, the most flexible, adaptable, broad-range, imaginative, crazy form that prose fiction has ever attained. And we're going to let it be used for making toy plastic ray guns that break when you play with them, and prepackaged, pre-cooked, pre-digested, indigestible, flavorless TV dinners, and big inflated rubber balloons containing nothing but hot air? Well, I say the hell with that. I think what our statue of science fiction needs to do is to use his eagle eyes to look at himself. A long, thoughtful look, critical look. We don't have to be defensive anymore. We aren't children or untouchables. Like it or lump it, we're now adult, active members of society. And as such, I think we have a challenge to meet. We've got to stop skulking around playing by ourselves like the kid everybody picks on. When a science fiction book is reviewed, 
In a fanzine or a literary review, it should be compared with the rest of current literature, like any other book, and placed among the rest on its own individual merits. When a science fiction book is criticized in print or in a class, it should be criticized as hard as any other book, as demandingly, with the same expectations of literacy and solidity and complexity and craftsmanship. When a science fiction book is read, I wish it could be read as a novel or a short story, a work in the traditions of Dickens and Chekhov, not as an artifact from the pulp factory. And finally, when a science fiction book is written, the writer really ought to be aware that he or she is in an extraordinarily enviable position, an inheritor of the least rigid, the freest, the youngest of all literary traditions, and therefore should do the job just as well and seriously and as entertainingly, as intelligently and as passionately as ever it can be done. That is the least we can ask of our writers, and the most. You cannot demand of an artist that he produce a masterpiece, but you can ask that he try. It seems to me that science fiction is standing right now in a doorway. The door is open, wide open. Are we going to stand here waiting for the applause of the multitude? It won't come. We haven't earned it yet. Are we going to cringe back in the old safe ghetto room and pretend there isn't any big bad multitude out there? If so, our good writers will leave us in despair, we heard about this afternoon, and there will not be another generation of them. Or are we going to walk on through the doorway and join the rest of the city? I do hope so. I know we can, and I hope we do, because we have a great deal to offer to art which needs new forms like ours, to critics who are sick of chewing over the same old words, and above all to the readers of books who want and deserve better novels than they mostly get. But it'll take not only courage for science fiction to join the community of literature, it'll take strength and self-respect and a will not to settle for the second ring. It'll take genuine self-criticism, and it will include genuine praise. You know, if you think secretly or openly that you're second-rate, that you're 95% trash, then however much you praise yourself in your in-group, it doesn't really mean much. It's like adolescent boasting, which often reveals this horrible feeling of worthlessness. I do think science fiction is pretty well grown up now. We've been through our illiterate stage, and we've been through our latent or non-sexual stage, and we've been through the stage when you can't think of anything but sex and all the rest of the stages, and really we do seem to be on the verge of maturity now. Lee Harding doesn't like the word, but... <laughs> and when I say I'd like science fiction to be self-critical, I don't mean pedantic or destructively perfectionist. I just mean I'd like to see more science fiction readers, fans, critics, whatever, judging soundly, dismissing failures quietly in order to praise successes joyfully, to go on from them, to build on them. That's what maturity is, I guess, a just assessment of your capacities and the will to fulfill them. And we do have plenty to praise. I think science fiction during the past 10 or 15 years has produced some books and stories that will last, that will be meaningful and beautiful many years from now. It seems to me we can grow and change and welcome growth and change without losing our solidarity. Because the solidarity of the science fiction community is a really extraordinary thing. 
it makes the lives of fans much richer and more complicated, as I can see. For the writers, it can be an incredible boon. The support, the response a science fiction writer gets from his readers is really unique. Most novelists, you know, get nothing like that. They're quite isolated. Their response comes from paid reviewers and review services. And if they're bestsellers, then they're totally isolated from genuine response by this enormous mechanism of salesmanship and publicity and success. What fandom, what, what the science fiction community gives the science fiction writer, or at least this is my own experience, is I think the best modern equivalent of the old small-scale community, the old city-state, like Florence was in the Renaissance, within which most of the finest art forms developed and flourished. A community, not too big, not too small, of intensely interested people, a ready audience, ready to discuss and to defend and to attack and to argue with each other and with the artists, to the irritation and the entertainment and the benefit of them all. So when I say the ghetto walls are down and that it behooves us to step over them and be free, I don't mean that the community of science fiction is breaking up or should break up. I hope it doesn't. I think it won't. I don't see why it should. The essential lunacy that unites us will continue to unite us. The one thing that, that has changed is that we're no longer forced together into a mutually defensive posture like a circle of musk oxen on the Arctic snow attacked by wolves, you know, by the contempt and arrogance of literary reactionaries. If we meet now and in the future, we writers and readers of science fiction, to give each other prizes, and see each other's faces, and renew old feuds, and discuss new books, and hold our celebration, it will be in entire freedom because we choose to do so. Because, to put it simply, we like each other. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Two Chairs Talking Podcast, and that was Ursula Le Guin's guest of honor speech at the 1975 World Science Fiction Convention in Melbourne. My co-host today was Kerry Hanfield. Thanks, Kerry. That was a good episode. Thanks for joining me and co-hosting. Um, I hope you can join me again in a fortnight and do Certainly. the same sort of deal. Certainly. And uh, we might talk about some uh, some other yeah, things we've been reading uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, cover those. So thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back in about a fortnight. Please, if you enjoyed the, listening to the podcast, please tell your friends, get them to subscribe. Or you can go to iTunes and give us a rating on the iTunes store. If it's a nice rating, all to the better. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.